I used to study humpback whales for a living. I worked in a lab at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, extracting DNA from tiny pieces of whale flesh. Our goal was to figure out how much genetic diversity there is in modern whale populations, so we could estimate how many whales there were before their populations were decimated by whaling. The hope was that the work could help international policymakers regulate the modern whaling industry. Even though old whale meat sitting in a tube of formaldehyde smells worse than pretty much anything, I really loved that job. It was exciting to help unravel this scientific mystery that could have a profound impact on whale populations. I was a whale detective, only instead of fingerprint powder and a magnifying glass, I had a pipette and a centrifuge. I have to imagine that on an arguably more important scale, that's what it's like to be a scientist studying COVID. It's got to be supremely stressful to be a virologist or immunologist, but I wonder if those scientists also feel like super sleuths, solving mysteries that will impact human lives today and for generations to come. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. Believe it or not, whales are going to make a reappearance later on in today's show. You'll have to stay tuned to find out how. Also on the show, should you get a haircut? Play golf? Take a rideshare? Today, we're going to talk about which activities are safe, which aren't, and how you navigate all those judgment calls in COVID's murky middle. But first, for the past few months, 538 has been working with some of our colleagues from ABC News to look at who has access to COVID-19 tests. Believe it or not, there is no official list of every testing site in America. So the team used a dataset of known test sites compiled by a healthcare company called Castlight. It's not a perfect list. For example, some of these sites might be pop-ups that only provided tests for a few days. Then they looked at census data of where people live in major urban areas in America, down to small groups of blocks. From that, they could figure out just how many people a particular testing facility might serve, along with the race and income of those people. This week, 538 finally published the results, and they show pretty staggering disparities in access. Joining me to discuss are 538's quantitative editor, Laura Bronner, and Matthew Van, a producer and reporter for ABC News Washington. So Laura, in broad strokes, what did you find? In broad strokes, what we found was that areas that were majority white had on average, in a lot of these cities, more test sites per person than areas that were majority Black or majority Latino. In fact, even accounting for income, Black and Hispanic neighborhoods still had less access to care than white neighborhoods. And what that means in practical terms is that if you live in one of those areas that is majority white, it's probably going to be somewhat easier for you to get a test you're, you're not going to have to wait as long, probably. It's not going to be as hard to get an appointment and so on, just because there's, there, there's more provision in your area. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll jump in there to add on to what Laura said. Um, so a city like Dallas is a place where you can clearly see 
um, examples of, uh, of the racial disparity when it comes to testing center placement. Take, for example, the University Park section of Dallas, where income is upwards of 200,000 and the population is 90% white. There are several testing centers, you know, some within walking distance. We compared that to the city of Lancaster in Southeast Dallas, where median income is somewhere around 53,000. It has 15,000 more residents than University Park, but blacks there in the city of Lancaster make up nearly 70% of the population. Residents in Lancaster hoping to get a COVID test have to travel at least seven miles to the nearest drive-through testing center. Think about that, seven miles just to get a test, whereas you know, in another neighborhood that's wealthier and wider, they're, they're in walking distance. What are some of the cities where you've found the, the highest disparities in testing access? So San Antonio, Texas stands out. Um, their majority Hispanic areas faced uh, a potential demand on their sites of, of about what we estimated double what majority white areas face. For majority black areas, the disparity is even greater than that. It's more than double. Baltimore, Philadelphia, Miami. Um, in Miami, the disparity is particularly large between majority Hispanic areas and majority white areas. Um, so these differences do um, depend on the city, obviously, but those are some of the cities in which we found the biggest difference. I mean, Matthew, what are some of the reasons that we see these disparities? Are there underlying reasons that test centers are in certain locations and not in others? Right, yeah. So, I mean, I would point to um, some of the private sector reasoning behind this. So if you're living in a neighborhood where there are limited numbers of people who are insured, entrepreneurs and retail pharmacy companies are less likely to want to set up there. It's bad business for them. In their mind, why set up in a neighborhood where people can't afford to pay for their medicine as opposed to a place where there are higher rates of insured, where people have the wherewithal and finances to be able to make those appointments, to see specialized doctors and get specialized care and pay for their medicine at that. So that's the private sector. And the government, uh, the government response to where testing centers go basically mirrors that. You know, they're putting uh, testing centers where there are already medical practices. So if you're living in a neighborhood that has one or two medical practices, well, that may very well be where you're going to get your COVID-19 test. And what we found is that in predominantly African-American and Latino communities, there are fewer of those private medical practices, um, thus expanding the problems when it comes to access for a COVID-19 test. Yeah, and jumping on that um, is one other thing, which is that our analysis didn't account for for demand um, among people. So we know that COVID-19 has particularly hit uh, Black and Latino communities hard. And um, so one of the issues here is that there's likely more people in those areas who want to get tested in the first place, maybe because they have um, essential jobs or they're they're getting exposed um, more frequently. But so so that probably, I mean, uh, that's one thing that sort of adds potentially to 
what we already found is that like these areas have sort of fewer test sites to begin with per person, but then on top of that, there's even higher demand for those sites and f to get tested. Because if you're if you're being exposed regularly, you might want to get tested regularly. <laughs> it's it's not like a one and done kind of situation. So basically, I mean, the government is providing testing in places that already have like good health care. So this is basically just exacerbating a pre-existing issue in healthcare disparities that existed long before COVID. Part of the issue is that each state has been left to make decisions about how to allocate tests themselves. There's really been no standard guidance from the federal government about where testing facilities should be set up or how to monitor access. And it's only been more recently that states have started fixing these disparities. Well, Anna, it's basically been a knee-jerk response. Cities are now saying and telling us that they're using the CDC's social vulnerability index to determine where testing centers are going to be placed, um, particularly in the communities that need them the most. And just to clarify, the CDC's social vulnerability index uses census data to identify communities that may need extra help preparing for or recovering from a disaster. Um, I know that government officials, um, when confronted th with this information, simply rejected the notion that there are less testing centers in communities of color. Um, you know, they often reference these pop-up sites that Laura mentioned, you know, places that set up quickly, sometimes overnight or in a day or so, as they're addressed to the problem. But public health ex experts we've spoken to um, at Harvard, um, University of Pennsylvania and elsewhere say that this is, again, simply a knee-jerk reaction and it doesn't address the problem of racial injustice when it comes to those testing centers, center access, because it's the cities are basically responding primarily to neighborhoods that already have medical centers and medical practices set up. I realize this is probably an obvious question, but I think it bears repeating as many times as, as we can. What does the lack of testing mean for these communities of color, both in terms of the public health impacts and the potential economic impacts? So the lack of testing in these communities of color means that the government will not be able to adequately address the problem of the coronavirus in these minority communities. As we know, the coronavirus is disproportionately impacting black and brown people um, so much more than it is people of other races and other racial backgrounds. And without being able to address the problem of the coronavirus in these communities, that means that the federal government will still be playing catch up in terms of putting out this fire. I think a big part of this is information. Getting tested by itself doesn't contain the pandemic, but having accurate information about the extent of the spread in your community is one of the components of responding to this. And so if areas are systematically under-tested because of this disparity, that makes it much harder to have a handle on what's actually happening there. And that in turn makes it much harder to adequately respond. Right. And that has a huge impact on that specific community. But then, of course, you know, this disease 
really can affect everyone and it, it has the potential to really affect every community. Yeah, like these problems don't stay in these communities. There's obviously a lot of spillover um, nationally and even globally. Uh, I think there, there, there's a great line in the story that says, you know, the, the coronavirus doesn't discriminate between black and white, but there is that infrastructure that basically has discriminated and it's made it so much harder for those people that have been victims of that discrimination to equally access testing. Well, Matthew and Laura, thank you both so much for sharing your really important reporting with me. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much, Anna. As states begin to reopen, we're all having to weigh decisions about which activities are safe and which aren't. Like, outdoor dining might be allowed in your city, but is it really a low-risk activity? Even science journalists are having trouble knowing what's safe. Our senior science writer Maggie Kurth wrote a piece this week called Every Decision is a Risk, Every Risk is a Decision, and she joins me now to talk about it. You've been talking to epidemiologists about this. How did they make these sorts of daily judgment calls that we're all making? So I think that a lot of them, from talking to them, it sounds like a lot of them are sort of starting with some basic understandings from data about what big broad categories of things are safer or more risky. And that sort of means that you're safer if you're wearing a mask, you are safer if you are outside as opposed to inside, you're safer if you are in small groups as opposed to big groups, you know, those kind of very broad concepts. And then they're kind of starting to make judgment calls, basically, from there, based on how well they think you can get to the to having the more safe practices with any given activity. So like a skate park, for instance, if you are outside and there are not a ton of people at that skate park, and if any other people show up, you are wearing a mask, that's probably a relatively safe thing to do. Um, you know, especially if you're doing it by yourself and you're not there with a whole group of your friends that you haven't seen in months. You know, that's not a bad choice. Um, but you can also think of a situation where a skate park could be a risky choice if you're going in like a group of, you know, five or six people and you don't know what kind of behaviors those five or six people are doing when they're not around you and you're not wearing your masks and it's an indoor park. You know, there's just all of these different kinds of specific factors that can really affect an activity's risk level. And so they start off from these like big broad ideas and then start trying to apply them to smaller smaller and smaller concepts and kind of see what might work. Do you think people should be taking into account like how many cases there are in the in the state that they're living in um, as they're sort of like making these judgment calls? I think that that's a reasonable thing to to be doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's going on in your state and your city is also a function of how risky things are, right? So like, you know, I might feel differently about taking a taxi in, God, I don't know, (laughs) let's say Bozeman, um, compared to how I feel about taking a taxi in Dallas, Um, right? So like, those those are factors to consider. 
Well, okay, now that we've talked about the uncertainties and complete murkiness of, <laughs> uh, of, of all of these guidelines with, you know, a sense that nothing is going to be 100% safe, I do want to talk about what consensus there is around certain activities. So, you know, there have been like tons of these charts and word clouds floating around about activities that are safe and aren't safe. Of all of those, which one do you trust the most? It's it's not so much that I trust one more than the others. It's more about how they're explaining their process. So, um, you know, I've looked at a bunch of these and I feel like I feel like a lot of them got the information right. But I feel like the one that conveyed the thought process that you need to do this on your own, which a lot of this stuff is what you need to do, is something you kind of have to do at home on your own, is this one that was put together by um, Saskia Popescu and Ezekiel Manuel. Um, I wrote about it a little bit in this story this week. Um, and it's what I like about this chart is that it does break down activities by risk level. But it also breaks down, like I said, those big broad categories of these are the thing, the kinds of broad setups that are going to make your life safer. And whatever you're doing, you should be thinking about how it fits into these safer practices. Can we walk through a few of the items on the list and sort of look at how they deal with the uncertainties? So what... What this basically says is that the risk exposure, the risk levels, are going to be based on four main factors. Whether the space is enclosed or not, so like how much ventilation you have, where the air is coming from, how packed together you are with people, how long the interaction is, how big the density of the crowd is, you know, how many people are packed into the space and how tight together are they, and whether there is this forceful exhalation of air happening. You know, are people sneezing, yelling, singing, coughing? And then on top of that, whether or not you wear a mask. So like those five things are sort of the factors that you're thinking about whenever you're thinking about what the risk level of an activity is and how you could mitigate risk and still get some level of that activity in. Those should be the factors that you're considering. And so this chart has those things listed first and then starts talking about these different activities and their risk levels. So then in that context, you know, staying at home alone or with members of your household is the safest thing that you can be doing. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> right. And then conversely, concerts, religious services, um, you know, going out to a bar nightclub a big indoor party, those are your most, you know, your most dangerous, your highest risk things. Um, Because you can kind of see then how those fit into these factors of enclosed space and duration and crowd and yelling and singing, right? Like those things, you understand why those are risky, which I think is the more important thing because these charts can tell you how like certain versions of these activities as imagined by the experts, how those things are risky, what kind of risk level they have. But ultimately, you kind of have to make these decisions yourself on a daily basis. So knowing why they think those things are risky and like what risk factors are involved is is more important necessarily than 
having absolutely everything charted out. Right. I, I like what they do here because, like, for example, they, they call, like, taking a taxi or rideshare service uh, something that's a medium risk. But you can also understand that, like, the length of that trip, whether or not you have the windows open or closed, how many people you might be sharing the car with if you're, you know, doing something where you're picking up multiple people, like, those could all be factors in just how what whether this is actually a medium risk ride a low risk ride a high risk ride right and same thing with like outdoor restaurant dining right like they have that as a medium risk but there's probably a pretty big difference between a crowded patio filled with a whole bunch of different tables and they're all kind of right next to each other and nobody has any kind of you know masks or anything on and um you know you sitting by yourself on an otherwise empty patio far from anybody else, right? Like those are obviously different things. And maybe one in context is safer than the other. So Maggie, I mean, how are you coping with making these judgment calls? I think that like, I really understand and really feel <laughs> like wanting someone to tell me this is this is the safe thing to do. This is not the safe thing to do. Um, but I'm and that the and I understand the stress that sort of goes into not having that. And the fact that like we are, we're just, nobody can really do that. That's just not how this works. I've actually found some comfort in sort of thinking of it as here are the broad guidelines that can help me make decisions about specific things and specific situations on a daily basis. And that like one day something might be okay because the specifics line up with my guidelines and another day it might not be because they don't. That's actually easier in some ways to me than trying to categorize all of the activities. It's less stressful to me than trying to categorize all the activities. And maybe that is helpful for other people. Maybe it's helpful to you to have you know, these broad guidelines and start trying to apply it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just not, there's not an easy answer. And that's one of the many extremely frustrating things about this pandemic. Well, Maggie, good luck with making all of these judgment calls in your own life. Uh, we're all, you know, we're all in the same boat. Yeah, we are. It's only, <laughs> we shouldn't be because we all can't, we don't, don't get in a boat with me. I want the boat to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, good point. We're all in our own kayaks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Maggie. Yeah, thank you. And now for a little good news. This week, I read a really lovely story by Lauren Somer on NPR. It was about the impact of the pandemic on whales in Glacier Bay in Alaska. This year, there's been much less shipping traffic in the area. And as a result, the bay has been very quiet. Here's what the bay sounded like on May 25th, 2018. And here's what it sounded like on May 22nd this year. Noise has a big impact on whales, who communicate in part through song, and some of whom hunt using echolocation. So a drop in noise levels could have a pretty profound effect on their ability to communicate, and thus their behavior. Plus, scientists have found that shipping noise can make whales stressed. 
After 9-11, when shipping temporarily waned, scientists found that whales were producing fewer stress hormones. And side note, they measured those hormones by studying whale poop. This dip in noise isn't just good for whales. It's also good for the scientists who study them. According to that NPR article, it's been a pretty amazing opportunity to study whale communication and behavior in an ocean that sounds more similar to the one whales thrived in a few hundred years ago. Many thanks to Dimitri Ponarakis from Cornell University's Center for Conservation Bioacoustics for letting us use his recordings of Glacier Bay. And to Dr. Laura May Collado of the University of Vermont for her humpback whale recordings. She recorded these particular whales as part of her acoustic monitoring initiative called Ondas in Costa Rica in 2016. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. All right, see you next week. And to all my whales out there... Mm -hmm.